This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. CBS News Face the Nation in 60 seconds. Are you looking to hit your fitness goals? Let Beachbody On Demand help you get there. No need to go to a gym or schedule a class. Everything is right there on your personal device. They have programs for any fitness level, and the workouts range from cardio to weight training to yoga, low impact, and even dance. There are over 600 different workouts on the platform. Beachbody On Demand even provides comprehensive nutrition plans to help you meet your goals because working out is just part of the equation. Access to information on meal prep, variety of recipes, and simple but proven eating plans. You need to give this service a try. Right now, listeners can get a free trial membership when you text FTN to 303030. You will get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutrition information free. Just text FTN to 303030. Text FTN to 303030. Today on Face the Nation, President Trump makes a big concession on immigration. But will he stick to it? As the president prepares for his first official State of the Union address, he gives Republican leaders what they've been begging for, his proposal to protect young immigrants. But some conservatives think it goes too far. Plus, the New York Times shakes up Washington with a report that Mr. Trump ordered the top White House lawyer to fire special counsel Robert Mueller last summer. Fake news, folks. Fake news. Typical New York Times fake stories. We'll get reaction to that report and go behind the scenes on immigration with Maine Republican Susan Collins, Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders, and the top liaison between the White House and Capitol Hill, Mark Short. Plus, a pair of House members tell us how they're trying to break the immigration impasse. Texas Republican Will Hurd and California Democrat Pete Aguilar. And Illinois Democrat Tammy Duckworth is going to be the first U.S. senator to give birth while in office. But she's discovered some rules that need changing. So the Senate is behind the times, is what you're saying. The Senate is behind the times, so we're gonna we're gonna work on that. (laughs) As always, we'll have plenty of political analysis of the week's news. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Nancy Cordes. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and we begin with the Republican senator from Maine. Susan Collins. She led a bipartisan effort to reopen the government last Monday, and her group of about 25 senators is now working to influence negotiations over a bill to protect children of undocumented immigrants 
and increase border security. Senator, welcome. Thank you. I want to talk to you all about immigration, but first I want to get your reaction to the latest news that was first reported in the New York Times that despite months of White House denials, the president actually did express a serious interest at one point in firing special counsel Robert Mueller. I think it's important to understand that the president cannot directly fire Mr. Mueller. The only person who has that authority is the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, and he's the one who appointed Mr. Mueller in the first place. I asked him about that at a hearing last year, and he was adamant that he would resist any White House pressure to fire Mr. Mueller. But doesn't it sound like the president was at least trying to obstruct justice? I think that the president was frustrated and angry about the investigation, and he did what he should have done, which was to talk to his lawyer in the White House. And clearly the White House counsel said, you can't do this, Mr. President, and it would be very unwise for you to try to do so. And here it is seven months later, the White House counsel is still there, and Mr. Mueller is proceeding with a very aggressive and thorough investigation. So there's a big difference between wanting to fire someone and actually going through with it. Uh, you have not weighed in yet on these two bipartisan bills that would essentially protect Robert Mueller from an undue firing. Uh, does this latest news change your calculus? First of all, I commend the two groups of senators, Senator Tillis and Senator uh, Coons, plus Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Booker for working on bipartisan legislation to have a strength and safeguard in the law to protect uh, the special counsel from a firing. And that was what used to be in the law many years ago when we had an independent counsel law. It expired in the late 90s. I was one of the few senators who wanted to extend it at that time. So I'm totally open to adding that safeguard. Um, you're on the Senate Intelligence Committee where a lot of these interviews have taken place so far behind closed doors. Would you uh, support open hearings uh, with big players like Jared Kushner or Donald Trump Jr. so the American public could hear what they have to say. I think more open hearings is a good idea. We've had 12 already, and they've been very interesting hearings. But my interest is making sure that we don't compromise in any way the special counsel's investigation. So we have to be careful to coordinate testimony to make sure that we're not interfering in that way. Now to immigration. After weeks of confusion over the president's position on the so-called dreamers, the White House has now issued a list of what it wants to see in a bill that would provide legal status to that population. And here's the highlights. A path to citizenship for up to 1.8 million young people, $25 billion to pay for a border wall and additional security, an end to family-based migration for all but spouses or children under 18, and an end to the diversity visa lottery. These are some major changes to the immigration system in exchange for protecting this narrow slice of the immigrant population. It's helpful to know what the four pillars are that the administration is looking for. Congress has got to work its will 
and ultimately we'll see what the president is willing to sign. It seems to me that the two important things to tackle right now and that our group will be making some recommendations to those who have legislative authority on this issue on is to protect the dreamers and also to strengthen border security. The other two issues are very important issues. They're very complicated issues as well. Why do you think the White House suddenly came out embracing a pathway to citizenship? I talked directly to the president about this issue, and I found that he was very sympathetic to a case that I told him about of someone in Maine who came to this country at age four and didn't even know that he was not a citizen until he went to apply for a driver's license and then his parents told him. And it's pretty compelling when you know that the average dreamer was brought to this country through no fault of, of his or her own at age six. And right. to say that those, it, those young people should be shipped back to a country that they have no memory of, that they don't know, is uh, really a pretty difficult position to take. But do you trust the president to stick with this position? He's already getting a lot of blowback from conservatives who call it amnesty. I give the president credit for putting in writing and saying that this is what he wants to see happen, despite the criticism. Look, there's going to be criticisms from both sides on, on whatever we come up with. So you've now got 25 Senate moderates all squeezing into your office periodically, and they're hoping to influence this immigration negotiation that's primarily going on now between the number twos or the whips in the House and Senate, this group of four. But it seems like those four leaders are going to be much more focused on what House Republicans can live with than what Senate moderates can live with. Well, we hope to have an influence on the process, but we don't control the pen. And Senator Durbin and Senator Cornyn are the leads in the Senate. But they've been very open to input, and I think ideas will be funneled to, to them, and we'll see what they come up with. But if they agree, I have a feeling that that will be a bill that can go all the way to the president's desk, and that's our goal. You're optimistic, right? I now. am. Senator Susan Collins of Maine, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. And joining us now, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. He is in Burlington, Vermont this morning. Senator Sanders, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, I'd like to get your take on the White House immigration proposal and specifically these dramatic restrictions to family-based migration and the end of the visa lottery. Can you live with these changes in exchange for protecting the DACA population? Well, I have concerns about aspects of those proposals, serious concerns. I think, Nancy, that the focus right now has got to be to do what the American people want us to do. And poll after poll shows that 80 percent or more of the American people understand that we have got to restore the legal status that Trump took away from 800,000 young dreamers, uh, people who came to this country when they got two or three years of age, uh, and we cannot let them be put in a position where they're subjected to deportation. So the main focus, to my mind, has got to be to make sure that dreamers have legal status and a path towards citizenship. But the political uh, reality, saw... Senator, the political reality is that Congress is run by Democrats. At some point, do you have to say, a bad deal on Dreamers is better than no deal on Dreamers? 
Well, I think for my mind, and I speak only for myself, where the bad part comes is the idea of a wall, uh, which I thought was a great idea in the 15th century when China built the Great Wall. Not so smart today when we have technology that is much more effective uh, and, and more uh, cost-effective uh, in terms of protecting the border. So I think you're going to see a lot of debate about how much money we should spend on border security. But I would also say, Nancy, that the issue that we're dealing with is not just about DACA. It is about the fact that we're four years into a fiscal year. Republicans have still not given us an annual budget. Enormous issues out there, uh, issues like decent funding for the community health center program. 27 million people get their health care through community health centers, not been reauthorized. VA has 30,000 vacancies. Veterans not getting the care uh, that they need, Social Security Administration, not providing services to the elderly uh, or the disabled, uh, student debt in this country. We have enormous issues which we have got to address. DACA is one of them, but there are other important issues as well. Um, and, Senator, obviously, I said Congress is run by Democrats. We both know it's run by Republicans. Uh, yeah, you're, I painfully, knew that, Nancy. you're painfully aware of that. Um, speaking of fiscal responsibility, though, what do you think your party got out of that three day shutdown? Was it a good strategy? Yes, I think from a moral perspective, uh, it was the right thing to do. I, and that is to say to these 800,000 young people, we are not going to allow them to be subjected to deportation. As Senator Collins just said, many of them uh, came to this country when they were two or three years of age. Uh, they didn't even know that they were not American citizens. So we have got to stand with these young people. The other thing, Nancy, is we received uh, information uh, from the Department of Defense a few weeks ago, and they said, this is the Department of Defense, we cannot run our, our operations, we cannot do long-term planning without an annual budget. Continuing resolutions are very detrimental to the military and to many other agencies of government. We are a $4 trillion government. There are areas where should we, we should be spending more money, areas where we should be spending less money. But you cannot simply spend in every division of the government the same amount as you spent last year. It's a terrible, terrible and inefficient way to run a government. Senator, the president is giving his first State of the Union address this week. And polls show that his biggest achievement so far, the tax cuts, are now gaining in popularity as some of these big companies hand out $1,000 bonuses. Are you glad that these people have more money in their pockets? Well, sure, everybody should be pleased when any worker gets a raise, but what we should also understand uh, that that tax proposal will add $1.4 trillion to the deficit, and at the end of 10 years, 84% of the tax benefits will go to the top 1%. Uh, Nancy, at a time of massive income and wealth inequality, billionaires and large multinational corporations do not need tax breaks. It is the middle class and working families of this country who do. Senator, you met last weekend with all of your top advisors, and one of the main things that you discussed was a possible repeat bid for president in 2020. So is there any big news you'd like to break here on Face the Nation? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry there is no big news. You know, I talked to uh, my, co, uh, my co-workers, uh, political advisors, every other week, every week. We do it by telephone. Occasionally, uh, we get together. So I'm 
I'm afraid to say it was not a big deal. But, but it, sounds like it's, right. it sounds like it's something of a big deal. Your own son, Levi, tweeted, Bernard is seriously contemplating a run in 2020, and I don't mean well, a jog. Well, I love my son very much, <laughs> but he is, not un, he is not aware of all of the things we're doing. Really, right now, uh, what our focus is, is on 2018, uh, is to making, doing everything that we can to see that the Democrats... Uh, regain control of the Senate uh, and the House and some governor's chairs as well. If you were to run again, what would you do differently? Uh, I don't want to speculate about 2020. You know, Nancy, the American people uh, are deeply concerned about the decline of the American middle class. We're the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. Everything being equal, our kids are going to have a lower standard of living than we do. We need to make public colleges and universities tuition free. What we need to do as a nation, whether I run or no matter who runs, mm -hmm. is revitalize American democracy and create a government that actually works for working people and not just for billionaire campaign contributors. So there are enormous problems facing this country. Whoever runs for president has got to focus on the needs of workers, be prepared to stand up to the one percent and create an economy that in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world addresses the issues of poverty and health care and education. Well, we'll stay tuned for your decision. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. And we're joined now by the authors of the only bipartisan dreamer proposal in the House. Congressman Will Hurd is a Republican from Texas, and Pete Aguilar is a Democrat from California. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, gentlemen, I want to talk about your plan in a moment, but first... Is the president's proposal a step forward, and in what ways is it a step back? Well, I, I think I appreciate the president putting this plan forward and narrowing what he would like to see in a bipartisan solution um, to this, this issue of, of DREAMers and DACA and, and also border security. Um, I still believe that a narrow bill is most important and the thing that we can get through um, our, our Congress, both houses and the House and the Senate, because the more things you add, you start creating coalitions of opposition. And so let's keep this narrow. Let's get it done in the next couple of days and go on to the next issue. White House proposal is definitely not narrow. It that, would seriously overhaul the nation's immigration. It's true. The most important thing we can do is to protect dreamers. So I do appreciate that it addresses that issue. Mm -hmm. But some of the changes that they are proposing are devastating to our immigration system. And I feel are better left for comprehensive immigration reform. So let's keep it narrow, as Will mentioned. Uh, let's focus on DACA fix and border security and move on and, and get those issues off to the next day. So here's what you've proposed. And so far you've got 53 sponsors, evenly split between Democrats and Republicans in the House, you would allow DREAMers to apply for permanent residency. You would increase border security, though not by as much as the president's proposal. You would not give the parents of DREAMers legal status. Essentially, this is a bill that is much more focused on the DACA population rather than being a conservative immigration wish list. Well, 
I'd, I'd start with, this is strong border security. Um, this is not an appropriations bill because we've always said that let's deal with the authorization, let's deal with how we secure a border. It, it's 2018 and we have not gotten operational control of our border. I have more border than any other member of Congress, 820 miles of it. And we, we don't have control and we should, and we should be utilizing some of the latest and greatest technology along that border. So this, this plan does that as well as fixing this problem for a, a population that have been have gotten here through no fault of their own. Do you both think that if the House Speaker were to allow a vote on your bill, it would pass? Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the only bill that would have 218 votes uh, on the House floor. We feel very confident about that. We've had numbers of discussions with our colleagues, uh, but this is the type of bipartisan approach that the American public wants to see. And it's important that if we're going to fix the DACA issue and add border security, this is the type of narrow focus that can get 218 votes and can get to the president's desk. But don't you think the fact that he has said nothing about it publicly, he's aware of it, yeah. is an indication of the political constraints that he faces? There are some well, conservatives who say yeah. that if he were to back something that doesn't get a majority of the majority, he loses speakership. Well, but you're assuming that this can't get the majority of the majority, and I don't, I don't agree with that, with that presumption. Also, the fact that the president has come out and said, let's make sure that there's a permanent legislative fix for 1.8 million kids, I think that also gives some credit to many of the, of the, the proposals that we're, we're forwarding um, in the USA Act. This is exactly what the president asked for. This is a DACA fix with sensible border security. These are common sense measures. This is the type of proposal that should garner a signature and that he should support. And we feel that we can make our case to our colleagues uh, to get that done. And this gets us to a a deal on caps and this gets us to a vote on, you know, funding the government. You know, this is this is what we've always thought that this should be. And it's it's a strong baseline that has, you know, really good support in both houses. So is your focus right now on pushing your plan or on on trying to get some of your ideas worked into these bipartisan negotiations that are going on among Republican and Democratic leaders? We should do both. We've said from the beginning that this should be the foundation for the discussions that we have. So we've had conversations with senators um, about our proposal. Uh, we hope that this becomes the base uh, for what is being discussed. We're open to making some, some changes uh, as long as it garners support in the Senate and, and gets to the president's desk. That's been our focus. That's what we've been working on for weeks behind the scenes. Um, and uh, we feel that we're, we're making good progress. What happens if we get to March 5th and DACA is set to expire and there is no new legislation? It's a good question, and I hope we don't get there. And I think you've seen um, many folks in the White House have said that we don't want to get there. I don't think anybody in Congress wants to get there. That's why we need to buckle up, um, sort this out over the next few days, and I think we have a couple of weeks, and get this done before that, that March deadline. But here's what a White House official also said this week. He said, come March 5th, if there's no DACA deal, the White House will not direct ICE and DHS to deport DREAMers, but if they will, are swept up in a raid, they will be deported. They are not protected. If you're a DACA recipient, that's pretty scary stuff. It's flat out unacceptable. Uh, we can't have policies uh, that deport DREAMers. Um, we shouldn't stand for it. Uh, that's exactly why we're working so hard to get this done. But let's also keep in mind, three Homeland Security Secretaries have told us in Congress that it's going to take time to write these policies and proposals once we have an agreement and a deal. So we need to get this done quickly. We need to offer the certainty uh, that, that, that they're due uh, for this dreamer population uh, to make sure that that situation does not happen. That's why we're working so hard, and that's why you see efforts in the House and the Senate in a bipartisan basis uh, to get this done. 
Congressman Hurd, I want to ask you, because you're on the House Intelligence Committee, have you seen this memo that alleges that the FBI's Russia investigation is based on flawed sources and methods, implies that the investigation is biased, and what do you think of its validity? Well, I, I have seen the memo. I'm one of the people that voted to release the memo to the rest of our uh, colleagues in the House so that they understand what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, for, for me, and this is real clear, I, I spent almost a decade as an undercover officer in the CIA. I was the guy in the back alleys at 4 o'clock in the morning collecting intelligence on threats to our homeland. I've served shoulder to shoulder with the men and women in the FBI, and the rank-and-file folks are putting us uh, and keeping us safe. Um, what we have to make sure is that the political leadership of these organizations are across all the T's and dotting all the I's. Is this hurting their morale quickly? Um, um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think what, what every rank-and-file member of the FBI wants to ensure is that everybody within that organization is following the law to, the, to, to its letter. Got it. Thank you so much, Congressman Hurd. Congressman Aguilar, thank you for changing your weekend plans to be with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Nancy Cordes. And joining us now is White House Legislative Affairs Director Mark Short. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Nancy. Uh, first off, why did the president want to fire Special Counsel Mueller, and why did he decide not to? Well, Nancy, the president's never intimated to me in any way a desire to fire Mueller. I think that uh, there's been a lot of sensational reporting on that. Let's keep in mind a few things. Uh, that report dates to some June conversation, allegedly. We're now in January. Mueller's still a special counsel. Don McGahn is still running the White House Counsel's Office. Millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars have been wasted on an investigation that so far has proven no collusion with the Russians. Well, the investigation's not over, right? Of course it's not, because it's continuing to drag on, and it's dragged on for a long time at a great expense, mm -hmm. with yet no evidence of Russian collusion. And so the reality is that Mueller is still special counsel. McGahn is still head of White House Counsel's office. The president's never intimated to me in any way desire to fire Robert Mueller. Um, have you advised the president, have others around him advised him of the consequences of firing either a special counsel Mueller or Rod Rosenstein, who, you know, it, recent reports have suggested the president has now turned some of his ire towards? I have no reason to believe the president's considered firing him, so there's no reason for me to counsel him one way or the other on that, Nancy. I think that, uh, as I said, he's never intimated that one way or another to me. It's not a conversation typically I'd probably be involved in, but there'd be no reason to raise it. Mm -hmm. How serious do you think that this memo that purports to outline uh, FBI mistakes when it comes to the investigation is, you just heard Congressman Will Hurd, who's on the House Intelligence Committee, say that he believes it should be released, at least among other members of Congress. Right. Well, we haven't obviously read the memo. It's classified, so it's hard for me to speculate on what's in the memo. I do think that we typically prefer transparency, and so if there are concerns that I think would be helpful for uh, Americans to know about it, we would be open for that being released. Even if it reveals FBI well, sources I think and methods? Plenty, there's plenty of ways you can redact a document to make sure that uh, methods are not revealed. But if there are serious concerns about unmasking that happened in the previous administration, then I think that uh, the American people should know that. Uh, I want to ask you about immigration. Lawmakers have been begging the White House for 
weeks to come out with your immigration plan. You do, and you get hit from all sides. You've got uh, conservatives who are calling it amnesty. Uh, you've got Democrats saying uh, that this is a, a false choice. Basically, you're you're creating a pathway to citizenship for dreamers, and then you're taking away a whole bunch of other rights in exchange. Well, now let's keep in mind a few things, Nancy. When they say they've been waiting for us, the White House submitted our priorities many, many months ago. When General Kelly was still Secretary of DHS, he asked Congress to address this. Even Republican leaders said they had no idea where the president stood. <laughs> that, I think that's a convenient explanation. We were very clear with Congress what we wanted. We put our priorities in writing and sent them to Congress on October the 8th. October the 8th. We sent another document back in December. What this piece finally did is it refined what our position is on the DACA population itself. And I think the president, as he said in that very public meeting at the White House, he said, I will give cover on my side. The question is, is Leader Schumer, Leader Pelosi stepping up to give cover to their side? They clearly have a radical left base that is putting pressure on them. And I understand the challenges of managing some of their conferences. But the president's put forward a very, a very, um, a tremendous compromise to get this solved once and for all. It's perplexed Congress for decades to get this. He's showing the leadership to finally get it done. Democrats say that by preventing immigrants from sponsoring parents or adult children or siblings, you're tearing apart families, you're cutting legal immigration by 50 percent. In fact, here's what the largest dreamer advocacy group said. Let's call this proposal for what it is, a white supremacist ransom note. Yeah, that's absurd. You, I mean, that's, that's even ridiculous to try to respond to. Here's what it does. What we're trying to do is we're trying to protect the nuclear family, Nancy. And so we're providing those visas for spouses and children, trying to protect that. What's happening right now in our visa system is you're providing visas for aunts and uncles and siblings that continue to go on, hence it's called chain migration. So therefore, there's a four million backlog, so you can't get children and spouses in because you're taking care of so many different distant cousins. What our proposal does actually is it protects a nuclear family and focuses on them as opposed to extended relatives that are continuing to get into the country and get priority over children and um, spouses. But doesn't that belong in a comprehensive immigration negotiation? This is a, a much more narrow plan that is related to this specific population, young people who are brought to the country illegally. Congress will always have a reason to do something later as opposed to fixing a problem today. This president is trying to solve a problem that has been perplexing our country for decades. He's offered a very, a very rational compromise to get it done. This is what was born out of many conversations with Democrats alike mm -hmm. and Republicans to get to this point. It's actually what will ha ha help us get it done and protect us so we don't have this problem several years from now. If you just do border security and DACA, all you're going to do is create an incentive for more people to try to flood the border because they're going to say, I'll get citizenship in the future too. You need to fix it all. There's lots of things we're not doing. We put aside a lot of our interior enforcement requests to say, let's keep this more focused. This is a very focused, rational proposal. I've got about a minute left, so I want to ask yeah. you quickly about the State of the Union, the president giving his first State of the Union address on Tuesday. And he's going to outline a $1.7 trillion infrastructure plan. But if you look at the fine print, it's only about $200 billion in federal funds. Is it realistic to think that you can leverage another $1.5 trillion in private, state, local money when you're starting out with that little? I think it's very realistic to leverage those dollars. I think as we continue to roll back the regulatory front, there'll be more private investment coming in. There are a lot of people who said the president couldn't create 2 million jobs in the first year, who said we wouldn't see unemployment at a 17-year low, who said we wouldn't see GDP at 3%, who also said that after the tax relief package in one month, 3.1 million Americans, 3.1 million workers have either received a pay increase or a bonus. 
The president's making an enormous impact on our economy. It's turning this country around. I wouldn't bet against him on the infrastructure plan either. Something tells me the economy is going to be a big focus of his speech on Tuesday night. White House Legislative Affairs Director Mark Short, thanks so much for thanks being Thanks for having me, Nancy. Appreciate it. To help us make sense of this week's political news, we're joined now by Bloomberg White House reporter Jennifer Jacobs. Dan Balls is the chief correspondent at The Washington Post. Rachel Bade covers Congress for Politico. And Ed O'Keefe is a congressional reporter for The Washington Post, and he's also a CBS News contributor. Thanks, everyone, for joining me today. Jennifer, I want to start with you. You just heard Mark Short say that as far as he knows, the president has not expressed a serious interest or expressed an order to fire the White House special counsel. Is that true? If you ask different White House aides, you hear different recollections. Um, I've talked to at least a dozen White House officials about this, and some of them sincerely say, I don't remember the president ever saying anything like that. In fact, they say definitively he never ordered Don McGahn, uh, the White House counsel, to fire Mueller. Apparently, this was a a conversation with a, a very small, tight group. So it depends on who you talk to. But keep in mind, um, 48 White House officials, campaign staff, or people affiliated with the campaign have spoken with Mueller or uh, to the congressional committees. That's a lot of people who are preparing for testimony or for speaking with Mueller. There's a particular group that share a lawyer. That's three people. That's Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, and Don McGahn share a lawyer. So they theoretically could be talking about their recollections back at the time, mm-hmm. and this could have this piece of history could have come up in, in one of those recollections. I've also heard from um, one person that there's some tension between Don McGahn and another White House lawyer, Ty Cobb, and that's where this could be coming from. So there's a lot of different theories. But depending on who you ask, some of them will sincerely say they have no recollection of this happening. Others say, yeah, but it was just to a tight audience. Dan, even Republicans this week were not surprised to hear that the president mulled over the possibility of firing Mueller. After all, he's tweeted that this investigation is a witch hunt 22 times. Yes, that's right. And I think that the reporting uh, that has been done on this has been pretty clear. I mean, the story was broken by the New York Times. It was quickly confirmed by many other organizations, ours among them. Um, I think that there's little doubt that this happened. Um, And in some ways, there's not a surprise that that it happened. I mean, there are are a series of things that the president has said and done over the course of many months to indicate his distaste for this investigation and his desire in one way or another to get in the way of it. Now, what that adds up to is going to be left to the special counsel to make a declaration, and then people can draw further conclusions from that. But we know that he is unhappy with this investigation. Ed, Senate aides tell me they're now working very quickly to try to combine these two bills that are out there that would basically protect the special counsel from firing. Does this incident give that legislation more momentum? Conceivably, because here we are talking about it after months of not talking about it. Uh, It's two different plans that essentially permit judicial review in the event that uh, special counsel would be fired. Uh, What's notable is that there are Republicans involved in this because over the summer when this became an issue. They, they got concerned and understood that this could become a thing. The problem is, we've seen this morning and we've seen in recent days, Republican leaders say, we don't see a need necessarily to bring up this legislation right now. That said, I have, can recall talking especially to Democratic aides in the last few months who've said, if this had happened, or if it happens, in the midst of all the ongoing negotiations over the budget and immigration and the, you know, the threats of shutdown, the Democrats would conceivably put a halt to it all and force the issue by either having that legislation attached to the bill mm-hmm. or at least saying, we're not doing anything until you address this. But 
this isn't necessarily that because it happened so many months ago and there's evidence that people stood in the way of it. It's if he tries again right. that you may see a grind to a halt on the Hill. They're saying this is a red line. Rachel, at the same time, you've got House Republicans trying to give the president a little bit of cover and pushing this notion that the very foundations of this FBI investigation are flawed, are biased. Uh, are they winning hearts and minds on that argument? They're certainly winning over a lot of the Republican base. I think I saw a poll this week that said 75% of Republicans think that the Russia investigation is just to undermine the credibility of the president. Um, Going back to this, I think um, Republican leaders are not necessarily going to put legislation on the floor to protect Mueller. And that's because this reporting, you know, it happened seven months ago. Mm -hmm. And they also note that he ultimately didn't do it. Um, And as Susan Collins mentioned in your interview this morning, uh, he doesn't have the ability to do that. That's uh, Rod Rosenstein, who uh, is clearly at the DOJ and is still in his position and has said he is going to allow Mueller to do his job. At the same time, you see Republicans sort of holding up right now these Text messages between two FBI officials they think uh, had anti-Trump sentiments, one of them expressing how he or she did not want to probe Hillary Clinton uh, very hard because they were worried she would win Mm -hmm. the presidency and she would be their future boss. So, yes, they are trying to go after the FBI. I think Republicans are winning over their base on this, but most Americans still, of course, support Mueller. And, Dan, Rachel raises a good point. I mean, if the president wanted to fire Mueller but at the end of the day didn't go through with it, does it matter? Well, it matters because it does show his desire and sentiment, particularly at that moment. And it's important that, that Don McGahn stood in the way of it to the degree that how, how that all unfolded, we're not exactly sure. But Don McGahn, in one way or another, prevented it from happening. Uh, but to Rachel's point, I mean, if he moved to try to do this, uh, there are other obstacles that he would face. But again, if he did it, and again, we're blocked. I think it would create an even bigger firestorm um, than than you know than it, this incident that we didn't know about at the time, other than his friend Chris Ruddy, who had indicated in a public interview with with, uh, Judy Woodruff on PBS that the president was, in fact, considering this sort of thing. So it's not as though this was totally tightly held. Uh, I mean, he had obviously shared it with Mr. Ruddy uh, of his desire at the time. But um, there are safeguards built in. But, you know, go back to the, you know, the Saturday Night Massacre uh, with Richard Nixon and during Watergate. It took a number of steps ultimately for that to be, uh, you know, executed. Um, But it, you know, it it could be the same kind of thing we would have this time. I want to turn to immigration and, Ed, ask you, you know, now that the White House has finally laid out its stance, notwithstanding Mark Short saying it's actually been out there for months, um, does it give conservatives cover to support a dreamer bill that they know is going to anger a significant segment of their base? If the changes in family-based legal migration are part of the final package. And if they get the 25 to $30 billion in border security, yeah. But if not, they'll stand against it. I think what this plan from the White House, which is formally being released on Monday, shows now is that the debate over whether or not to legalize or provide legal protections to people who are protected by DACA is basically over. It's just an issue of how many. But with the president going all the way to $1.8 million, that basically settles it. The fact that Chuck Schumer went to the White House a little more than a week ago, sat with the president and basically agreed on $25 billion in border funding, means that that's over. Democrats have now flashed that card and said, if that's the price to pay, so be it. There will be some who don't like it, but he basically put them there. 
So the question is, are those other issues regarding family-based migration, changes to what's called the diversity lottery included? And that, I think, now is where the fight will be, because this is an issue of can a DACA recipient's parents stay here legally? Can they bring a brother and sister? Could their spouse also get it if they're old enough and they're married? Mm -hmm. And those are emotional fights now over the size and scope of one's family once they get their legal status. Right. It's going to be a painful piece of the debate. It's why you're seeing some say, let's have a narrow debate over DACA and border security. Mm -hmm. That's Congress for, let's have an easier fight (laughs) over border security and DACA, which we seem to basically have agreement on. Jennifer, why did the White House suddenly come out in favor of a pathway to citizenship? Well, they have been privately uh, signaling that they would be willing to give the Dreamers a pathway to citizenship. The concession that they made here was going from the 690000 to the $1.8 million. That is a change. It, like Mark said, they've been saying that for a while, that they would allow the path to citizenship. They just didn't want them to show their cards on, on how many. But I was told by one Trump insider that this would help them with, for example, Republican college-aged women. A lot of things come down to, you know, the electorate and, and how things turn out in the vote. They also don't want to appear too nativist. That's another reason. Uh, but also, speaking of the vote, one thing to keep in mind is that, that these dreamers wouldn't be able to vote themselves until about 2028, long after Trump is gone. Right. This is a long pathway to citizenship. Uh, Rachel, you wrote this week about the fact that Speaker Ryan is essentially a centrist on this issue, but he's also afraid to cross conservatives. Yeah, uh, the immigration debate is not just uh, about the future of dreamers. It's about the future of a speaker. Um, Paul Ryan um, has said many times that he is sympathetic to the dreamers. He doesn't think they should be deported. They came here as young minors, only know the United States as home. However, he governs a very conservative House Republican conference who, by the way, do not support a pathway to citizenship for this population. And they made him promise when he became speaker that he would never put an immigration bill on the floor that does not get a majority of the majority. However, what we're talking about in the Senate right now probably would not get a majority of the majority. Mm -hmm. The one anecdote I would say to, or anecdote for this toxic concoction for the speaker is President Trump. If he embraces a bipartisan solution, maybe it protects Ryan. Rachel. That's the last word. Thank you so much, Rachel, Ed, Dan, Jennifer. Appreciate you being with us today. And we'll be back with our conversation with Illinois Democrat Tammy Duckworth, who is expecting to break a big barrier in the Senate. Like what you're hearing? Get even more great content from CBS News Radio podcasts. Listen to TV broadcasts like CBS Evening News and Face the Nation on demand. I'm John Dickerson. And don't miss The Takeout, a politics, policy, and pop culture podcast from CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. We have our first member of the Trump administration cabinet at our table, Mick Mulvaney. Will you ask the wrong people first? Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Senator Tammy Duckworth is an Iraq War veteran, a double amputee, and soon she'll be the first senator to give birth while in office. The Illinois Democrat announced this week that she is expecting a second baby girl in April, a few weeks after her 50th birthday. She wants other women struggling with infertility to know what she went through, 10 years of trying to conceive her first child, and a miscarriage this time while campaigning for the Senate. What did your doctor say to you about the chances of getting pregnant at 49? Well, he said it's a new 40. So he said 50-year-old mom is a new 40. (laughs) And I have the most wonderful fertility doctor, and uh, he helped me with Abigail. And he just said, if you're willing to go through the process with me step by step, it will seem like it takes a long time, 
but we want to do this right. And he was right. And we just, I just had to be patient and go through that. It's kind of like being a mom. You have no control. <laughs> I remember that feeling when I had one, I felt like a super mom. And mm-hmm. then once you have the second one, all those illusions are shattered. Oh, well, we'll see. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like a super mom during the first baby. I, I decided to run for the United States Senate um, when I was on maternity leave, which was a leap of faith to do that. So I was a congresswoman. I was trying to breastfeed, travel, campaign, do my job as a United States congresswoman. And it was really, really tough. There were a lot of tears and a lot of, why am I doing this? And I just want to be home with my daughter. Um, but then I would come across a situation that needed to be fixed, like legislation that I could pass, and I realized, no, I have to do this. This, this makes me a better, a better legislator. One of the things that you noticed uh-huh. uh, when you were doing all that traveling was that a lot of airports didn't have anywhere for you to nurse. No, and, and, and I would go into airports, and I said, well, it's, it's the handicapped stall in the public toilet. And I said, that's disgusting. You wouldn't eat a sandwich there. Why would you think that I should nurse my baby there or pump breast milk there? That's wrong. It was humiliating, and, and um, so I tried to make, you know, tried to pass some legislation on it. And it, it's out of um, committee, uh, mandatory nursing rooms for, for moms at airports, and hopefully we'll get an FAA bill and it'll become law. Did you dream about going into politics before all of this happened? Oh, my Lord, never. <laughs> Duckworth was a helicopter pilot in the National Guard. Her call sign, Mad Dog. Shortly after she deployed to Iraq in 2004, her Black Hawk was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. As she was recovering, she got a surprise invitation 13 years ago this week. It was Senator Durbin who found me in the hospital. He invited all Illinois servicemen and women at Walter Reed, all wounded warriors, to, to go to the State of the Union. And I was one of two who was well enough to go. It was my first trip out of the hospital. It was very emotional um, to go into that gallery and look down and see this democracy that I just sacrificed for. It was overwhelming. I mean, it still gets to me, um, that feeling. And, uh, and I was missionless. I was missionless. I was a helicopter pilot with no legs. And I was trying to find a way to serve my country. And we were having issues at Walter Reed. And I just became an advocate for my buddies because I happened to be the highest ranking amputee patient. And so I met Senator Durbin that night, and he made the mistake of giving me his personal phone number. (laughs) And I just started calling him. I didn't know any better. And after about 10 months of this, he called me up and he said, you need to run for Congress. And that's how I got into this. It's crazy. (laughs) And now you're standing uh, on the floor of the Senate um, and taking on the president on military issues. I have a message for Cadet Bone Spurs. If you cared about our military you'd stop baiting Kim Jong-un into a war that could put 85,000 American troops and millions of innocent civilians in danger. You called him a five-deferment draft dodger. Four for uh, school and one for uh, medical reasons that he can't even remember what foot the bone spur was in. I can still feel the hangnail on my right foot, <laughs> and, it's, and it's missing. And, let a, you know, and, and we have a guy who says that uh, he had a bone spur that kept him out of Vietnam, but that doesn't remember where it was. Do you think that that disqualifies him from being commander-in-chief or making decisions about the military? No, I think he was elected rightfully to be president of the United States, but I don't think that he has the right to question uh, other people's support for our military, especially those of us who have served. Duckworth is the first so, disabled woman in the Senate and the first member of Congress of Thai descent. 
That's a lot of firsts. Yeah. How does that feel? Unintentional. <laughs> it, well, the whole being the first uh, sitting senator to give birth, I think, is ridiculous. It's 2018. We need more female senators. We are only 22 of us. I've been a little overwhelmed by how landmark it is when it shouldn't be. It's a, it's a 21st century. But even someone used to breaking barriers runs into obstacles now and then. I was the 10th one in the House, so there was policy in the House, but there's no policy in the Senate. I have to figure that out. She recently discovered that children are still prohibited on the Senate floor, which complicates her plans for maternity leave. I'm going to take the time that I need with my daughter, but in the middle of all that, there might be days when I have to, you know, we have a lot of close votes right now that I need to come in and, and not let the people of Illinois down. Right. But then what do I do with my baby? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. so the Senate is behind the times, is what you're the saying. The Senate is behind the times, so we're going we're gonna to work on that. <laughs> and that's it for us today. Thanks for watching. I'm Nancy Cordes, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd, and California Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, plus Illinois Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.